Good morning. There's a tiny little book at the end of our Bibles, just before Revelation, called Jude. And we would probably do ourselves a great disservice, actually, in a series on First and Second Peter if we were to leave it out. The reason for that is that the theme of Jude is so much like the theme of Second Peter. Even though the or even the flow of thought and reasoning that Jude uses to argue against the opponents of the gospel in his audience are like Peter's. We, we, we don't know the specific audience to which Jude was writing. He didn't identify them, which makes the letter seem even more like it could just be addressed directly to us, to any church, which was maybe the point. James, the brother of John and son of Zebedee, was martyred for his faith very early in the spread of the church. We find that in Acts chapter 12, or this is when it would have taken place, which means this James in verse 1 was the leader of the church in Jerusalem and also the half-brother of Jesus Christ, which is what Jude was, born to Mary and Joseph after Jesus would have been born. Neither of Jesus' half-brothers, though, James or Jude, used that to gain a hearing with anyone that we know of, although you would think they would. That would be important information. Instead, as we see here, as we see in James 1.1, they identified themselves like us as servants of God and of Jesus Christ. Jude was most likely an itinerant preacher and wrote this letter to people he had ministered to that were now in danger. There were always wolves around. And if Jude is the half-brother of Jesus as we think he was, then obviously the letter was written during his lifetime as well as during a time when false teaching had developed, which didn't take long, placing Jude sometime between 65 and 80 A.D. Now, we're only going to spend two weeks in this letter, this week and next week, but that's not because it's unimportant. This series through First and Second Peter and Jude, which we're ending now, gives us the ability to see Jude as part of the whole, but Jude packs an eye-opening punch. And what I mean by that is he's so relevant for the church in our day that we might not be ready for the letter to hit us. Jude is going to get to the heart of what it is that really destroys churches. And the question for us this morning, Moundsville Baptist Church, is whether we're going to listen to Jude or let Jude glance off of us. Letters like Jude are where we find out. Do we really believe the Word of God is inspired, inerrant, infallible, and the only source of authority in the church? Or if we just like to say that because it makes us sound super religious, super conservative, super serious. Jesus Christ is the head of His church. And Jesus is the head of this church. Or we aren't a church. So let us hear the word of God. Jude lays out a description of those that are threatening the believers to whom he writes. He gives them no labels like Peter did. Peter called them false teachers. He called them scoffers. Jude calls them nothing but certain people. Certain people. This is a warning against a group of people that exist in every church that has ever existed. Divisive people. Driven by their own desires and preferences. And that is a big deal. Jude is the letter that would be sent if an apostle or one of these preachers heard that a church was fighting over the color of paint 
in the church bathroom or something. This is the letter that would be sent uh, if they were fighting over what time service started or what you know whether there should be pews or chairs in the sanctuary. Jude is the letter for that. The Bible actually addresses where those kinds of things come from. We need to hear this letter. Not because we're doing those kinds of things right now, but because if we don't fight to keep the gospel front and center, we will be. We will be. What the Bible teaches, beloved, is that that kind of thing is a danger, and it is a danger, everywhere and all the time. God inspired this book for His church, and He had His reasons. And so Jude called the church to contend for the faith because of specific challenges to the faith that he identified as the occasion for this letter. We are called to contend for the faith when it is challenged by the selfish desires of those who reject it. If you're able, would you please stand with me as we read just the first four verses of Jude together now, although we'll make it down to verse 16 this morning. Jude verse 1 through 4. Jude, a servant of Christ Jesus and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, the enemy is not asleep. There is a calling, Lord God, to contend for the place of the faith, your gospel in your Son's church. It is the only conflict we are called to be engaged in. We don't have time for other ones when eternity is coming. So turn our hearts now to you this morning, Father. Turn our hearts to your Son. Enable us to hear this text with honesty. And may the Lord Jesus shine in our midst today. Father, help me to preach for your Son's name and not for selfish motives. Lord, please be with me. I ask all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated, everyone. The structure of the whole letter flows out of the ideas that Jude presented in verses 3 and 4. Jude had intended, we find, to write to these believers in a much more pleasant way about the truth that held them together, their salvation by grace through faith in the gospel. Instead, he's become aware of the fact that certain people have crept in unnoticed into the fellowship of these believers. And they're perverting the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. You can't do that vocally and continue to be in the church. So they're denying Him. They're perverting it by what they do. They're not saying it out loud. They're not that easily recognizable by that. That's a pretty serious charge that Jude makes here. I wonder how they're doing that. How can a person do that and get away with it in the church? His label's important here. <coughs> Excuse me. Certain people. Certain people. Even though 
The approach of Jude is basically the same as Peter in his second letter. Jude doesn't call out a specific doctrinal error where Peter, you know, when second Peter was written, you had a group of people that were blatantly denying that the Lord Jesus was going to return a second time. Jude is much more general here. He's saying there are people among you, certain people among you are threatening the gospel, threatening the core of who we are. Not all threats come in the form of false teaching. Some come in the form of certain kinds of people who conduct themselves in a way that threatens the purity of the gospel. And Jude's calling to contend for the faith is grounded in that word for at the beginning of verse 4. Why do they need to contend for the faith? Because certain people have crept in unnoticed. That's a call to fight an enemy you didn't even realize was an enemy. That's a call to fight an enemy that you technically didn't know was there. So the call to contend is rooted in Jude's conviction that the faith is being challenged by these certain people. Now, he's going to describe the situation in verses 5 through 16, but the final appeal to contend for the faith will find its explanation in verses 17 through 23. So the Bible won't leave us to our own imagination to figure out how we contend for the faith. It's going to show us how next week. This morning, Jude supports his case that these people are challenging the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Hear that phrase, beloved, once and for all, and remember it. The faith that was once delivered to the saints is a closed body of information. It is not open-ended. It is not subject to additions or changes. It was delivered correctly and completely one time for all time through Jesus Christ and His apostles. Jude identifies here then what counts as a threat to the gospel. Like, when can you make that charge? You are threatening the gospel in the church. And the necessity that the church has the fortitude to rise up and fight back. It will not be easy. I thought it was telling in the State of the Union the other night that the President of the United States of America actually had to say in the House chambers of this great nation that we will never be a socialist nation. That has to be said now by the President. And it's a sign of just how powerful these kinds of threats are that Jude is describing, that we have to contend for the gospel in Christ's own church. Who would have thought that would ever be the case? That we would have to fight for the gospel, the core, the thing that makes us what we are, the only hope that we have. We'll have to contend for that. Contend here comes from the word used to say to agonize over agonize over. This is a real fight. And I would contend then, that's part of the reason we need to understand it's the only fight. We're not told to contend to get our nation back to God. We're not told to contend and use our energy for the rights of Christians in culture. We're told to contend expressly and specifically for one thing. The gospel the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And again, the very fact we have to clarify that, even though it should be crystal clear for Bible-believing people, 
means that in some ways, at least, we have already succumbed to the threats of certain people that have crept in to destabilize us and take us off focus. When it comes time to show how to contend, Jude will give us a pointed manual on disciple-making, actually. But before that, he provides this rationale for his belief that we do live in a day that demands contending for the faith. There's an urgency to this letter, an immediacy that moves Jude and ought to move you and I. Jude said that these kinds of people in verse 4 long ago were designated for this condemnation, the kind he's about to describe here. And as Peter revealed the condemnation of false teachers as part of a pattern God has had throughout history, Jude will link the threats of certain people to deserving that same condemnation from God in verses 5 through 15, and then he'll identify just what it is very clearly in verse 16. So let me read to you verses 5 through 15. He says, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, did you catch that? Although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, that was Him. That was Jesus. Afterward, destroyed those who did not believe. It's the first thing they did. They didn't believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, He has kept, Jesus has kept, in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. Did you see in verse 5? They've forgotten something. His audience has already forgotten something. These are all things they once fully knew but have somehow forgotten. How could they have forgotten such important things? How is that possible? Jesus Christ has a record, we find, of dealing with people who reject God's revelation and don't believe what He delivers. Jesus was the one. Jesus was the one who led the people out of Egypt in the Exodus. That was God the Son doing that. And it was the same Jesus who destroyed the ones who didn't believe. 
It's very telling here. How did those people he's talking about give evidence that they didn't believe? It wasn't just by worshiping false gods. It was primarily by grumbling and complaining. And Jesus destroyed them. And the angels who rebelled, though third that sided with Satan in his rebellion, it's Jesus who's been keeping them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the day of judgment. So even though the devil prowls like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, he is on a leash. They all are. They never should have rejected the truth of who God is. They don't get another chance according to the Word of God. They have a date fixed with doom. And Sodom and Gomorrah, as well as the surrounding cities, they too, likewise in verse 7, indulged in the same type of sexual immorality and unnatural desire as the fallen angels did in Genesis 6, verses 1 and 2, who had sinful relations with human women. They did the exact same type of sin. They are also an example of the fact that eternal fire is reserved for those that reject God's, God's clear word to suit their own desires. And then in verse 8, Jude identifies these people, the ones that have crept in unnoticed in verse 4, as the people who do the exact same things. They rely on their dreams. It's an interesting thing to say, which is shorthand for saying that they're driven by their own opinions and desires. They're driven by their wishful dreams for the church. They look inside. They trust themselves. They follow their own hearts and so defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Some of these people did the exact same thing Peter was dealing with, apparently. They somehow blasphemed fallen angels. They had an arrogance about spiritual things. And Jude says in verse 9 that the archangel Michael, right? whenever Gabriel shows up, it's a pronouncement of news. If Michael's showing up, somebody's about to get beaten down, is basically how it works in the Bible. And Michael didn't even rebuke the devil when at some point, apparently, they disputed over the dead body of Moses. That event is not recorded for us in Scripture. The archangel Michael said to the devil, the Lord rebuke you. You, you see that. Let God deal with you. But in verse 10, the people Jude is talking about might be worse than the ones Peter was dealing with because they blaspheme everything, all that they don't understand. All of it. And they're going to destroy themselves, driven by instinct like animals are. That, that's, that's how you destroy yourself. Or like cannibals who eat themselves. To live by your own desires is to feast on your own flesh. Right? Woe to them, he says in verse 11. That's a serious thing to say. Woe to them. And he lists three people who were victims of the Lord's judgment for this kind of thing. Cain, the brother of Abel, Balaam, who was also brought up in Second Peter, and Korah. Cain brought his own produce to the Lord. The Lord didn't accept it, and so Cain murdered his brother who was offering the Lord had accepted Balaam, we know, tried to get gain off of Israel's plight. And then Korah got a group together and rebelled against the God-ordained leadership of Moses in the book of Numbers. 
all rejected the Lord, all despised his word, all acted in their own interests, out of their own desires, and they all perished. And these certain people troubling the church now are doing the exact same things. They expect the Lord to recognize the works of their hands as acceptable offerings like Cain did. They try to maneuver and position to gain standing and influence in the church, seeking gain like Balaam did. And then they rebel against the authority and influence God has placed in the church like Korah did. This is an object lesson from the past. And look at the metaphors. Look at the metaphors Jude used to describe them in verses 12 and 13. They're hidden reefs at your love feasts. So they have no true regard for the Lord's table or for His people. Remember, the Lord's Supper was a part of a feast the churches had together. And just like the enemies in Second Peter, they would take part in those as though they were the friends with the church. But Jude says, no, they're, they're like reefs that you can't see when you're sailing. And you run over them and your ship sinks. They were shepherds feeding themselves. They were ministering only to get gain from it. They were waterless clouds. They held no rain. They couldn't give anything to truly water the people's souls. They were fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. They had no life. They provided nothing. They were wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. They crashed down on the people to their harm, and the fallout of it, was awful for God's people. They were wandering stars. They had no light. They didn't accept the place that God had given them. They didn't belong to Him, and though they pretended to shine, the gloom of utter darkness that Peter also spoke of will snuff them out, along with the fallen angels who rebelled in verse 6. In fact, Though Jude calls them certain people and doesn't give them a label, they are among those whom God is waiting to utterly destroy. Even one of the Old Testament prophets spoke about them, a prophet we didn't know until the book of Jude was a prophet, a man named Enoch. Do you remember him from Genesis 5? Enoch was so heavenly-minded, apparently, that God just took him. But he prophesied, we find. Jude cites a book that is not in the Bible. He's citing from the book called First Enoch. He's doing the same thing he did in verse 9 from another book that's not in the Bible called The Assumption of Moses. So Jude is pulling from the literature of his own day, which lends support by way of illustration to his claims here. In other words, he's trying to press his point, saying the Bible isn't the only book that teaches what I'm saying. Enoch, only the seventh out from Adam, that long ago, prophesied that God would come with ten thousands of his loyal angels to execute judgment on all the ungodly. He says ungodly or ungodliness four times that have spoken against him. The point is how seriously God takes it when people speak against him, particularly when they are in a position where people will listen to them. So who are these people? I mean, what is, what's the name of their teaching? Tell us, Jude, so we can recognize it when we see it and call it out. Where are they? What, what proper nouns can we give to their ministries or their platforms? What do we do? How do we recognize them? That brings us to verse 16. And we have to remember the label that was given to them 
in verse 4. All Jude calls these people is certain people. In other words, they're just a part of the group. They're just a part of the group. So how did these certain people pervert the grace of our God into sensuality? What are they doing that makes them ripe for judgment like all these other examples that Jude and Peter gave to us? Did they condone adultery? Did they, you know, try to push a homosexual agenda in the church? Those things are easy to call out. We know those things are wrong. Were they not calling sin, sin? Is that how they were perverting grace? No. No. We think that's the fight. That's not the fight. Unless it has to be, right? Look at verse 16. These are grumblers malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. You know who these people were? They were the murmuring complainers that are never content, always dissatisfied and rebellious, and always grumbling. That is how these certain people perverted the grace of God into sensuality. We hear sensuality and automatically think some wicked sin that you do in the dark. No, no, no. It's any kind of sin that comes from desires of the flesh. They followed their own preferences and desires. That's what they did. And they pushed them in the church through loud mouth boasting, jockeying for position, to the point that they were threatening the very gospel itself. When church becomes a forum for our desires and our preferences, it is the gospel that will be sacrificed. You have to draw a line in the sand. Church cannot be about me and Jesus at the same time. Church can't be about what I want and what God wants at the same time. These are the certain people whose toes everyone's afraid to step on. That have dug themselves in, threatened by their own preferences and desires, the very life of the church itself. And beloved, we tend (coughs) to laugh at that when it happens and blow it off when people are grumpy constantly or complain constantly or murmur. Come on, I didn't... I didn't oh. we, th- well, I, we think that's funny and harmless. And ah, yeah, not the Bible. Not the Bible. When people complain to get their own way, because you know the church is made up of people. That's how people are. It's just part of being a church. Yeah. And it's a perversion of the gospel. That's what the Bible calls that. Perverting the grace of God. The Bible calls grumbling and discontentedness that comes out in loudmouth grandstanding and buddying up to people just to get influence. The Bible calls that sensuality. The Bible says that's the DNA of grumbling Israel. That's the DNA of demons. That's the DNA of sodomites. That's the DNA of false teachers. That's the DNA of Cain and Balaam and Korah. It's rebellion and it's evil. 
And all of heaven is waiting to rush out and crush every single one responsible for it. You skip right over Jude on your way to Revelation, don't we? Just, oh yeah, it's a, it's a quick read. It's, verse 16 describes people who are never satisfied. That's who it's describing. People who grumble because things don't go their way. Who grumble because their traditions aren't followed. You see, they, they, they live by their dreams. I want to see this. I want this. I like this. Yeah. Who grumble because they lose power and influence and will connive to get it back and grandstand to look religious and pious. These certain people, this is in the Bible because these certain people exist in every age of the church. They're in every church and contending with them is a matter of contending for the sake of the faith that God has given to us. That's what it is. I'm not worried about the culture influencing us. I'm not worried about that. I'm worried about us becoming so obsessed with our traditions and our preferences that we lose our lampstand. That's what we need to be afraid of. The purity and exclusivity and prominence of the gospel is the only thing worth contending for. And the fact, again, that we have to say that is proof that we don't see it. That should be a no-brainer. Church is different than every other thing in the world. It's not the same. It shouldn't look the same. It shouldn't conduct itself the same. It shouldn't be the same. Its message is completely unique and unlike every other board, every other organization, every other majority, everything. It's different from everything. Amen. Why would we ever fight over carpet or any of these. Why would we fight over those things? How, how a committee does this or that. Why, why would we fight over those things? Anything like that. Court, and look, of course we shake our heads and we shh at the fact that that could be what Jude is talking about. That's exactly what those in verse 16 would do with the truth Jude is telling us to contend for. They'd blow it off as, as calm down. That's why it requires an agonizing fight. An agonizing fight. And it is. Churches are consumed with their own traditions and preferences to the peril of the gospel. You see, that, that, that's what's at stake in the, all, all those fights. That's what's at stake in all those fights. Not who gets the majority vote for their agenda, but whether or not the church has a gospel. The threat described in verse 16 is shockingly mundane. It's shockingly every day. But let's be honest. Churches don't usually split over doctrine. That's not why there's a church down the street made up of, you know, 50 people from some other church that's up the street. And that's how it started. Not usually because of doctrine, but because somebody wanted to keep the pews and somebody wanted to replace them with chairs. You know, the first church I ever pastored, I got there right after they split over that. And the people that got mad that they... See, what they did was, see, they voted. The, the new pastor wanted to take out the pews and put in chairs. 
and doggone it, my great-great-grandmammy lived in that pew, and you can't take it out, that sort of thing, right? So they had a vote, and the chairs won. Majority rules. Great idea, okay? So they, they, they do that. Then the people that lost had a, had a special meeting where they brought in all the people that were technically members that didn't go there anymore, but those are my pews and my church. So, and they brought them all back. They voted and outdid the chairs this time. And so the chair people took their ball, moved literally like two miles down the road, started a church. The people that wanted the pews, they stayed. And all that happened right in front of the lost community where they lived. Yeah. You see, they were fighting over pews and chairs. What did they lose? Their light. Nobody thought that's what they were fighting for. And look, I'm not, I'm not talking down about them. That was, is one of the most shameful things of my life that I left that church because I didn't want to handle it anymore. That bothers me every day. So please don't think I think I'm better than those people. I wasn't. What I'm telling you is, is that we don't realize where the fight is. And, and we, like, you, you can lose a friend for the rest of your life over differing opinions over stuff that doesn't matter. And why, why would we put up with this? We are the church of Jesus Christ. That's how churches split. That, that's, well, they, you know, somebody moved the organ and got rid of it and, oh, glory to God. Jude is describing the people that will split a church before they'll give up their own preference. And that's why Jude was written, so that when things like that begin to take over a church, the Word of God and the necessity of the Gospel will have both relevance and authority. And if we were ever to split and fight over preferences and traditions, beloved, we might as well blow out our lampstand ourselves and save God the trouble. And no, I don't have a list of traditions in my pocket that I want to change here. Okay, can I just talk with you for just a minute? I don't have that. This sermon isn't a clever way to push some change I want to make. Okay? It's, it's, it's where we are. I failed so much as a pastor that I think I'm beginning to learn. I think. And I will let you down. You have to know that. I will let you down. And I will make many of the mistakes I preach against. So let that be clear. But I think I've failed so much that I think I'm beginning to understand that the one agenda worth pushing is to make sure that each and every single one of you hit your pillow tonight knowing, no matter who you are, no matter what you did, that Jesus Christ has you, forgives you, accepts you, and will keep you. And if, if, if I can... Get out of my own way. That's the agenda I want for our church. So 
this is like, I, I'm, I'm, look, can I be honest with you for a second? As opposed to lying, why, why would you ever say that? I don't know. I don't know. But like, I'm, I'm so first and second Peter and Jude. I, I was, I was, I, I've preached first Peter before. I, I never preached through second Peter. Um, never preached Jude before. So you study differently when you're preaching. And I'm, I'm reading through Jude. I'm thinking, dude, do I want to preach this message like eight months in? And, 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 you know, I, I, like, I'm, I'm not, I'm not pushing, man, I'm telling you. I don't have anything in my mind, man. We, we need to change that. What I'm saying is like, I look into the year to come. And, and with, with, Every step you take, you just, at, at any moment, it's, it's like the, the wrong thing messes everything up. And we're, we're going to amend our Constitution this year. Now, that can be a huge fight, but it shouldn't be because it's a Constitution. Okay? So just like those things, we always run that risk. Always. This, the, contend. The whole time we're doing, we should be contending. Contending for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The point this morning is our gospel, beloved. That's the point this morning. And what is worth fighting for when the time comes. And because the enemy is in chains, but he does not sleep. He's not inactive yet. Jude drew a line in the sand. J.C. Ryle said that truth is more important to the church than peace. And I, I think that's correct. And here's the truth this morning. There is something worth fighting for. There is a hill worth dying on. There is a stand to take that is worth what it will cost. And it's Christ crucified for sinners. And it is amazing how quickly what we confess can be so easily set aside for what we want, especially when it's over something unimportant. We contend for the gospel and we don't let anything cloud it over. So that from the time we wake up to the time we put our heads on our pillows at night, no matter what has happened in between for the believer, we know that full forgiveness of our sins and the credit of the perfect righteousness of Jesus to our accounts will never be taken away, will never be changed, will never fail. God forgives rebels who run farther than they think God would ever go. And God forgives people who lose their way and fight over the wrong things. See, He saves the prodigals and He pursues the older brothers. And He will save today. We're called to contend for the faith when it is challenged by the selfish desires of those who reject it. When we lose sight of our own desperate need for Jesus, of His blood to forgive us, of His resurrection to grant us our righteousness, we will default to our salvation being found in the gratification of our own desires instead. See, that's why this is so dangerous, because we attach our whole well-being to our agenda. We attach our whole identity to our agenda, and our identity is in Christ. And it not only destroys us, it will destroy the church, and we cannot allow it. What we fight for here is the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ alone. Everything else is sand.
everything. The front is open this morning. If you want to come and be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ and confess your sins and be forgiven and be accepted, the front is open for you this morning. God's arms are stretched out to receive all who come to Him by grace through faith. This Lord, who is this serious about the well-being of His people, is your Savior if you call out to Him. If you just need to pray, the front is open. If you want to come and become a part of our church through membership, the front is open for you. Let's pray as June comes. Father, I thank you for your word again. I thank you for its authority. I thank you for, God, its clarity when it's clear, even though there are things in it that are hard to understand. There are also things in it, the majority of things in it are crystal clear. And Father, what is clear is the core and the essence of how you treat a person who can do nothing for you in return. You save them by grace through faith. You pursue them and take them and keep them. And so, Father, I pray this morning that we would all look to you. The Lord, we would let the text work on each one of us this morning. And God, may you have your way at Moundsville Baptist Church. And Lord, I thank you for this church. It's my church. I go here. My family goes here. I love this place, and I thank you for it. And Lord, I don't preach this morning because I think we're filled with these kinds of people. I preach this text because I don't ever want us to be. And so, Lord, may you have your way. And I ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.